Welcome to Pioneering Today with me, Melissa K. Norris, where I inspire your faith and your pioneer roots. I show you how to grow your own food, heirloom gardening, how to preserve your food at home, and modern homesteading. Tune in every other Friday as I share proven strategies that anyone can do to live the pioneer lifestyle. Make sure to head over to melissaknorris.com and subscribe to receive free Pioneering Today articles and updates. I don't know about you guys, but we are super crazy busy with the garden this time of year. Um, The height of summer is also the height of our busy season with growing um, our own fruits and vegetables along with the livestock and then processing it all, um, preserving it. So this episode is dedicated to talking about um, organic gardening and bug control methods. So I'm just going to kind of share some of the things that we have going on here. And a new addition that I'm adding to the Pioneering Today podcast um, is recently, if you didn't catch it, I'm sorry, it was awesome, but it's still going on and it's the Summer of Survival um, Summit. And I did a webinar on home food preservation and there was a ton of questions, um, too many for us to get to during the live Uh, question and answering session. So I'm going to take a question and answer it on the show here um, each week until we get through them all. So one of the first questions that I had was in regards to water bath canning. And the question was, if you don't have a rack, what can you use in the bottom of your pot when you are processing your jars via water bath? And that's an Excellent question, because for many years, I did not have a pot, actually, uh, or excuse me, a rack to put in my pot. And so um, I've used a rolled up uh, dish towel. So you just kind of twist it up into a circle and then submerge that and put it at the bottom of your pot. And then your jars just sit on top of that. And it keeps them up off of the bottom of the heat source so that they're not directly on the heat source at the bottom of the pan. And then it allows the hot and the heat to circulate all the way around the jar. And another thing you can use, and this was actually in the, the comment section, which was fabulous, is you know your the old rusted, um, the rings from when you're canning, you know, you don't, we don't want to use the rusted ones. They don't tend to screw on well, and sometimes they can inhibit a seal. So don't toss those out. There's actually a couple good uses for them. And one of them is to use those rusted out rings and put those in the bottom of your water bath canner and use those as a rack to lift your jars up. Um, that's an excellent idea. And another thing that I use those rusted out lids for is I do basically the same process because they are fine um, in high heat situations. They were made from canning is I use those in the bottom of my slow cooker or my crock pot when I am cooking a whole chicken. And so a lot of the times I will roast a whole chicken in our slow cooker and to keep it up off the bottom so it's more succulent and it really does mimic a rotisserie chicken without a rotisserie is use some of those rings and put them in the bottom and put your chicken on top of them in the slow cooker. So those are two things that I really like to use the old rusted out rings for. Um, I always like to repurpose things any way I can. I hate uh, tossing something out if there's still a viable use for it, even if it's not its intended use. So that is going to be our um, question that we're answering today on the canning. And next week, I will have another one. And so I wanted to talk about uh, gardening, organic gardening in particular. Um, It's kind of funny, when I was growing up, um, organic wasn't that big as it is now. Um, But pretty much my family, and so then I, um, in turn, have always practiced 
um, organic gardening. That's mainly just because we didn't really have the money um, and we didn't have stores nearby um, to use chemicals. We practiced, um, you know, the way my grandparents and my great grandparents gardened. And that was before, you know, tons of pesticides were developed and those kinds of things. So I always like to tease (laughs) and say that we practiced organic gardening before organic was cool or before everybody knew what organic was. So so basically, organic gardening um, is just the art and practice of gardening without synthetic chemicals um, and pesticides. So um, there are some organic um, means of pest control, actually, and I've used a couple of those, and we'll talk about those. So when we do organic gardening um, and the methods in our garden, we don't use, you know, we don't um, use insecticides um, or synthetic um, fertilizers, that kind of a thing. So it's just, you know, exactly as, as God created it um, and natural. So we're not introducing chemicals and pesticides that have been linked to a lot of health, a lot of health issues um, cropping up from the continued use and increased use of them actually with um, our regular food source if they're not an organic farmer. So um, I also this week I wanted to share, I really, I loved... Um, this article that I read. So I kind of wanted to, to share it briefly with you. And it's from journeywithjill.net. And it's she's doing a series on what the Bible says about food. And I love it. Um, it really made me sit and think. Um, and she's really, I just love what she has to say. And I'm going to put it in the show notes, actually. I'm going to link to the beginning of the series so you can catch it. But the, the gist of um, what she said is, you know, um, I, we practice organic um, heirloom, non-GMO as much as possible. And um, so she really wanted to look at what the Bible says about food. And I love it because um, she's looking at it from the viewpoint is, you know, do we, those of us who practice organic um, and, you know, really try to eat whole traditional foods, eat healthy and that kind of a thing. Um, she was coming as, you know, like when you're at the grocery store. Or maybe at somebody's home or a potluck and you see somebody who is eating a lot of processed, sugary, um, non-healthy foods. Are you looking at them with judgment? I thought, wow. Um, You know, there's been a few times that I've been in the grocery store and, you know, you see somebody with a cart full of, you know, 10 cases of a Diet Coke or, you know, whatever, five, you know, bags of potato chips and a whole bunch of Twinkies and stuff. And, And I have to say, maybe I have looked at them with judgment or, or maybe as you know, we talk about and I practice, you know, the whole foods and the organic, have I used that as a, as a prideful thing? Um, you know, has that, has that made me more prideful than it should? And so she really just looks at the heart of it without being judgmental. Um, and just kind of causes you to, to sit and ponder that a little bit. And then she looks at different Bible verses and, um, and I just, I'm really loving the series. It's just started. So if you want to catch that, um, it's journeywithjill.net and it's a Bible study on what the Bible says about food. So I'll provide a link for that in the show notes. So for the show notes or any of the things that I'm talking about, you can just go to melissaknorris.com and click on the podcast button. And then I have each um, episode is listed there. So you can just click on that and go in and then look at the links and stuff listed under the show notes. So that's resources available for you. And so, you know, we practice um, with organic gardening. I want to say probably the best bet with organic gardening, your best defense, your first line of defense is to make sure your your plants are healthy. Um, So if you have a healthy plant that does start to get attacked by, um, you know, a disease or pest infestation, if the plant's healthy, it's going to have a much better chance of coming through and surviving than an unhealthy plant. So my first line of defense is just to keep our soil healthy. Um, and so 
what we do um, actually start in the fall is put down a good layer um, of mulch. So, or you can do a cover crop. We have actually done both. Um, and we'll talk about more about those later when it gets um, to the fall season. So you can, can do it more in depth, but um, you can put dried leaves down or you can plant a variety of cover crops. And that's going to help your soil during the winter months when it's kind of fallow and sleeping. And so that's the first thing that we do. And then in the spring, we always like to mix in, um, we have chickens and there's actually a, a really large chicken farm um, pretty near my husband's work. And so my husband works at a, a sawmill, actually. He um, saws guitar tops, um, primarily for Taylor and Martin guitars. Um, even though we're really rural, it's kind of funny. Um, he has a works at a sawmill that saws the guitar tops. So anyways, they have a lot of byproduct of sawdust, as you can imagine. <laughs> and sawdust can actually be good for the garden. And so they get chicken manure and mix it with the sawdust. And then that um, breaks down. They let it sit because chicken manure is really... Um, hot. It's very high in nitrate, but it's really, really hot. So you don't want to put it on fresh into your garden or it can burn your plants. And so they let that sit and um, cool off and start to break down and create compost with the sawdust. So it's a great way to use it. They use it around the mill. Um, They have a vegetable garden and fruit and flower beds there. And then um, the workers are allowed to bring some home. And so we mix that into our vegetable garden every spring um, before we plant. And we mix that into the soil really good. So if you have access to chicken manure, um, any manure, as long as it's not hot or it's not fresh, you want it to be um, dry is best. You don't want it to be wet. So you can do uh, pig manure, llama, um, cow, horse, um, any kind of animal manure is really good for the garden. And so one of the ways that you can introduce that into is to make a manure tea. And I know it sounds kind of gross to think tea and you're like, okay, but your plants will thrive with manure tea. And there's lots of different ways that you can do it. Um, you can even use like comfrey or stinging nettle leaves and create like a compost tea. And you can use that. Um, probably the simplest method that I've seen is to take like a five gallon, big five gallon bucket. And you're going to probably want a bucket with a lid on it. Cause one, when you're making, you know, manure tea and compost tea and that kind of thing, it's going to have an odor. <laughs> so you're going to want a lid on it just to keep the odor and then to keep it from getting knocked and spilt over. If you have young kids, obviously you don't want them falling in it or playing in it or that kind of a thing. So, um, a large bucket with a lid is preferable. And then you're going to fill it with the, um, the manure and you're going to fill it up, um, about, a quarter to a half with the manure and then you're going to fill the rest up with water and then you're going to let that sit for about three weeks and then you're going to want to drain it. Um, So if you have a bucket or a container with a spigot on the bottom, then that's going to make it really easy to drain. Otherwise, you're going to want to use like a really, uh, you know, like an old t-shirt, really old towel, something that you don't obviously care about using again um, or wearing, I should say. (laughs) And so you can use that and drain it out and then you have um, a manure compost tea. And so you don't want to use that tea full strength though because again, you can burn your plants and you only are going to want to apply it um, in the middle of the growing season, um, you know, about every three weeks if it's um, a plant that's really producing a lot or if it's in more, maybe more poor soil, um, you could do it maybe every every other week. Um, and so you're going to want to pour that around the base of the plant 
and let it um, soak it up. So when you're making the manure tea, you're gonna wanna use about one pint to two gallons of water. So you're really diluting it down because we don't wanna burn our plants. Um, so you just wanna make sure that you do not put it on full strength. Um, if you're wanting to spray it on the leaves, now this is gonna depend on the kind of t- plant type of plant that you have and that you're feeding. Um, like tomatoes and peppers, we don't wanna spray it on the leaves. Um, we don't, they don't want moisture on the leaves um, at all. They like to keep their leaves really dry. Um, but you can mix like a tablespoon or so of like vegetable oil um, and that's going to help keep any, keep it on the leaves. It's going to help it stick to the leaves so that they can absorb it. So that's one of the ways that you can organically um, feed your plants instead of using, um, you know, synthetic plant foods and that kind of a thing, especially on like your vegetable garden. Um, We actually, I do not fertilize after we plant. Um, We keep our soil amended well with compost. And then when I'm planting, for instance, my tomatoes and my peppers, when I plant those, um, I put compost down in the hole. And then I also crush up um, eggshells for the extra calcium boost into the hole for the tomatoes and the peppers. And then I also add a little bit of Epsom salt as well. So that's all that I do for those. I don't add... um, I don't add fertilizer throughout the summer months to the vegetable garden. We have a a pretty prolific garden um, and haven't had a problem with that, but we do take pretty good care of the soil. So it's going to depend on the condition of your soil when you first put your plants on, whether or not you need to fertilize or how heavy they're feeding um, throughout the year. And then, but one thing that we do do, and this is a really good way to introduce, um, if you're going to be for your um, anything that likes a little bit of an acidic level and that you want to add some um, compost to. And this works really good for potatoes. Um, if you mix in acidicness to your potatoes, it will help the scab from forming. You know, on potatoes, when you grow it at home, a lot of times they can get kind of scabby on the outside. Um, well, if you have extra um, acidicness into your soil, then that helps the scab from forming. So one of the ways to do that is you can use um, dried leaves, just dried leaves from trees that have fallen and you kind of mulch them up um, when you're hilling your potatoes and put that in there. And as those break down as the potatoes are forming, then that's going to help scabs from stop the scab from burning. And then another thing that you can do, and this works great for lots of plants. Um, I use this method for our blueberries, our raspberries, uh, tomatoes, peppers, potatoes. Um, and then if you have flowers, it works really great for hydrangeas, um, azaleas, and rhododendrons. And so I used our are used um, coffee grounds. So reuse those coffee grounds. Um, one caveat I would give is if you're doing this, then you're going to want to use, at least I do, is organic coffee grounds. Um, coffee actually has a lot, can have a lot of pesticides on it. So if you're not using, um, if it's just regular coffee, um, think about using the grounds beforehand, especially on your edibles. It'd be fine for your flowers, but um, on our soil, I don't like to introduce um, things that aren't. So organic coffee grounds is what we use. And you're just going to use the used grounds. So after you make your coffee, take those used grounds and then I work those into the soil. So I work them around the base of the tomato plants, pepper plants, in with the potatoes actually when we're hilling them up. And then I work those into the mulch and the sawdust at the bottom of the raspberries and the blueberries. And so one of the things you want to remember is um, you don't want to mix it in too heavily or leave it a lot of clumps. You want to mix it in well. If you leave it in big, huge clumps because it's already wet, especially if it's wet out, wet when you're putting it out, which we're in the Pacific Northwest, so <laughs> it's wet a lot of the time here. Um, so if it's too wet, then it's going to introduce mold and then it's not going to break down as fast um, and get the nutrients into the soil. 
So um, I've heard a lot of people say that they think that it helps with slugs um, and that kind of a thing. But the used coffee grounds isn't a huge, highly acidic level. And I really haven't noticed that it's done anything for the slugs, quite honestly. But it has really um, worked well on the plants. Um, my blueberries and raspberries love it. Um, and so do the acidic living plants. So and you also um, if you have when you're planting your tomatoes this year, we actually got um, a flea beetle on the peppers and the tomato plants and some of the potatoes as well. And so it's a little black beetle that jumps around like flea. Um, It doesn't get us, but it eats the foliage of the plant, especially when it's young and really succulent. And so it can, um, it can damage the the leaves, you know, and weaken the plant. And then if it's really heavy infestation, it's a really young plant, sometimes it can kill it. So one of the ways that I um, was researching to get rid of this organically beans that we had them was to use coffee grounds. And they said the best way was to put the coffee grounds in the soil when you're planting your tomato plants, um, because the flea beetle hatches out in spring and when you put the coffee grounds in and then I think it also helps when they lay their eggs that they don't like the coffee um, for whatever reason. And so then they don't lay their eggs and then they're not going to be hatching as much. So that is something that I'm going to be trying um, this following spring is using the coffee grounds in when I plant my tomatoes. Um, So this is our first year battling with the flea beetles, um, which I haven't lost any plants of yet. And I have to say when you're doing organic gardening, um, especially with the pest control being out with your plants daily and checking on them is key. And the reason for that is if you go five days without checking on them and something has started an infestation by day five, it's probably too late, um, especially if it's something that does a lot of damage really quick. But if you're out there every day and you're noticing the little things just as they start to pop up, it's much easier to control and to fix something if it's just right at the beginning. So I would recommend walking through your garden, you know, try on a daily basis, if not every day, we're out there pretty much every day, um, you know, looking at things, working, weeding, harvesting, whatever. So keep a really good eye on it. And, you know, a lot of times manual removal um, is a really good, really good. And so I actually went through and the little flea beetles, beetles, if I could catch them, I was smushing them. Um, And then if there was a lot on a certain leaf, I would um, take that leaf and pinch it off and remove them far, far, far away from the tomato in the garden area and just discard of them that way. So that that's one way. And then another way, and I've actually used this um, in our little mini orchard. Um, and this is a natural and it's organic um, insect spray and it's called Neem's Oil. And so neem is a tree out of Africa, I believe, and the oil in it, a lot of bugs don't like. And so it works on quite a few different things. Um, it's a I bought it in a concentrate form, and so you have to put it in a spray bottle. And whenever you're spraying anything on your plants, you want to make sure that you're not doing it in the hot heat of the day um, because you don't want to burn the leaves. So usually early morning um, is best. And then you also... I don't like to do it at night because the dew is going to be coming and it can wash it off. And obviously, if it's going to be raining, then you don't want to spray either. And usually, at least here, um, it's really best if you're going to be spraying anything to do it in the morning before the wind comes up. Here, usually in the evening, um, we get a lot of breeze kicking through. And so trying to spray something, as you can well imagine, when it's windy out, doesn't work so well. You're going to get a face full of it. And even if it is organic, I still don't want it you know, on my skin and, and breathing it and blowing on me. So um, with the neem soil, um, you can use that. Um, I've had pretty good success with that. We had, um, I'm not sure what it was last year, but it was something that was killing the leaves 
on the apple tree and it was a young tree and it was killing so many leaves that I was concerned that actually it was going to kill the tree. And so um, I got the organic neem soil and sprayed that on. And then usually with the neem soil, you have to spray again in about 10 more days. So it requires two applications. Um, and so we used that and I still have the bottle of concentrate. And another caveat though, is when you're mixing it up in a spray bottle, you know, label that spray bottle that it's only to be used for that. So you don't accidentally use it for, you know, house cleaner or whatever else. And then when you're spraying, don't save this spray. You need to spray it and use all of it or discard of it safely. Um, you don't want to save it in the bottle and then reuse it later. You just want to mix up what you're going to use at that time, use it and then get rid of it. So um, another organic pest method that we've had for the garden um, is Dimectus Earth. So if you've never heard of Dimectus Earth, Dimectus Earth is a great kind of all-purpose homesteading thing. Um, you can get food grade, which means that it's safe. Um, and so... Dimectus earth is just a great thing. A lot of people will use it in the chicken coop. So you can use it. um, It's a dust. It's a white powder. And so you can use that in the chicken coop, um, in the beds. And so if you're using that in the beds, you're going to want to sprinkle it down like in their nesting boxes and that kind of a thing. And and you can actually dust them with it or sprinkle it where they have their, take their dust bath at. And so that's going to help. It helps clean and get rid of mites, which we love um, if you have chickens and we, you know, and you don't want to have to worry about it. Um, and so why it works and how it's so good is uh, a lot of times you'll hear a DE too. Um, people just shorten it if you hear people talking about that. So it's kind of like an off-white, like a talc powder. And it's, um, what it is, is it's fossilized remains of marine phytoplankton. Uh, hopefully I pronounced that right. <laughs> and so when it's sprinkled on a bug that has an exoskeleton. So think, you know, ants, fleas, um, mites, that kind of a thing. It compromises the coating. um, And so then it dissolves, you know, the outside of their skeleton, basically. So it doesn't hurt us. Um, And actually, it's a lot of, um, you'll find, especially the food grade DE is in a lot of grain based foods. because it's stored with the Dimectus earth to keep the buds from eating it. So a lot of people really like to keep DE on hand um, and they use it not just for with chickens, but they use it in the garden. So a lot of times if you have, um, you know, things are bugging like your cabbage, um, broccoli, even your beans. I've had people say they've had ants that are, that will try to eat the beans. Um, you can sprinkle the Dimectus earth around the plant. If you get it on the plant, it's probably, it's not going to hurt it, but do it around the plant and then the animals won't want to be crossing across it. Um, and so then it's going to help protect the plant. They won't be able to get to it that way. Um, one thing too is, um, I'm not sure how well it works with slugs. I haven't tried it with slugs, even though we're in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I haven't had a huge, huge problem with slugs eating the garden. So I haven't tried that, but I would much rather recommend the DE to you than salt. I know a lot of people say they use salt to kill slugs, but if you keep adding salt, a lot of it to your um, soil year after year. The soil, the salt isn't great for your soil or your plants. So I would try um, the DE. That works great. And then another thing, uh, a good organic method for um, cabbage 
cauliflower, anything that le- that those moths lay um, with broccoli drives me crazy. <laughs> is those moths? They will they will lay eggs and then it, it gets worms and stuff in it, which is just ugh. Um, if you've ever steamed broccoli and then eaten it and then looked in the steamer and saw all those little bright green worms in it that died when you were steaming it, and you're like, oh great, how many of those did I eat? Uh, then you're totally with me on this. Yeah, raising my hand. We <laughs> we have done that before. First year we did broccoli. Um, I was so excited. I picked the first part of the season and brought it all in the house, steamed it up, and we ate you know huge amount of it. And then I got to look in in the steamer and I saw all those worms and my husband and I both, our stomachs just started turning, which is, you know, extra protein, totally fine. It killed him, but it still kind of was like, oh, gross. <laughs> so one of the ways in a gray organic way um, to eliminate that is to get the row covers. So you're, it's like a, it's a cloth, it's a plant cloth. And you put these row covers on your broccoli and your cabbage when the moths are flying and laying their eggs, which is in the, usually the beginning of the season. And so this cloth, the plants grow just fine underneath it, but it prevents them from landing and laying the eggs and then the eggs hatching out and the insects getting in your food to begin with. So this is a really good organic method um, and you can reuse the cloths from year to year as long as you store them. And so this is a, that's a great way, an organic method um, to keep the pests off without having to use a spray or doing a lot of work to the plants. And then another pest, especially for us here, um, is deer. And we also have a large elk herd um, that's in the valley where we live, though it's not, we haven't had it on our property yet, which I really hope that that doesn't happen because as you know, elk can be, especially a herd of them can be quite destructive. Um to a place. So anyways, we're fortunate not to have them, but we do have a lot of deer. And then we also have our cattle herd, which usually our fences are pretty good and they stay put, but every now and then a cow will get out. Um, there's, you know, lots of small little herds where we live at. And so cows, you know, do get out and cows like to trample and they like to eat things. So, um, between that and the deer and plus, um, I love my chickens, my laying hens. They are great little free rangers, but, they like to eat the food we like to eat. And so my strawberry plants this year, oh my goodness, the chickens and I went round and round and round. I had um, been saving, I'd been waiting for the strawberries, you know, when they're almost ripe enough, but not quite. You're just waiting for them to reach that perfect peak sweetness, bright red, juicy dripping. Oh my goodness. So the kids and I had been waiting for the first picking and one more day, we were going to pick them the very next day. And so that night when I got home from work, we got our little buckets and we went out to pick those strawberries. And those cotton picking chickens had ate every single strawberry, including the green ones. I was so mad. In fact, we had just butchered our meat chickens two weeks before. (laughs) My daughter, I was so mad. She's like, Mama, are we going to butcher those chickens now too? Are we going to eat those ones? Because I was, those chickens were getting a talking to, let me tell you. So I had to laugh and I'm like, no, we're not going to, we're not going to butcher them. I said, but if they don't stay out of my strawberries, they are going to go in the stew pot. So long story short, my husband um, is so sweet and knew how mad at those chickens I were for eating all my strawberries and I had more coming. So he used some netting and put some posts up and we just put some netting around the raised beds to keep the chickens out of the strawberries. And I have to say of all the different pest method controls for the deer and the chickens, rabbits, um, you name it, is fencing. Fencing and netting is just the the best thing. It just works the best. So um, we have our garden fence and we just use um, just regular metal fencing T-posts 
and some metal fencing around it. And it's a permanent garden spot. We So it's a was a one-time investment for us. We've had it up for, oh, goodness, six years now. Um, and so that keeps, you know, dogs, animals, everything except birds out of the vegetable garden. And then on the raspberries, our raspberries are so prolific that I haven't um, had to net those. But the blueberries, the birds, not just the chickens, but the birds, literally we will have blue jays and crows can strip a blueberry field here. I'm not kidding you, in like 24 hours when they're ripe. So we net our blueberries. Um, I just actually string a wire over top of the smaller row um, and we put a metal T-post into the ground on each end of the row and we put a wire up above them and then the netting goes over it like a tent. And then I tie it with jute twine at the bottom t- um, so that they can't get up underneath it. And so that's how I protect them. And then on the bigger bushes, we just use the netting and create kind of like a blanket on top of it basically uh, to keep the birds out and so that I still get my blueberry harvest. And then on the fruit trees, um, we have a dog but he doesn't like to bark and chase the deer away. I swear he barks at everything else, but not the deer. We'll have deer in the yard like next to him and he doesn't he doesn't even bother him. So, which they're very pretty to look at, but they can strip a fruit tree really quick too. And not only do they eat the fruit, but they break off the branches and kind of damage the tree. So we've actually gotten the really tall metal T-posts, metal fence posts. And then at the top around the tree um, where the fruit and the main foliage is, um, we use um, either like chicken wire or even like the hard plastic um, netting. And we'll put that around in a square around, do four four corners, four posts. And then we'll put that around the trees to keep them out. And so that's been our best defense against pests, the bigger pests, I should say, um, is organically. And that's just to keep them out of it to begin with. And so that's what we use the 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 very absolute most. And so, um, and then another thing is too, is you want to remember, especially this time of the year is your water levels. So if your plants stressed, um, you're going to, any kind of bug, any kind of infestation or disease is really going to take it out a lot faster. So just remember to check, you don't want to overwater, but you don't want to underwater. So we found for our garden that um, doing a really good deep watering once to twice a week is much better than watering a little bit every day. Um, And of course, this is going to depend on where you live, if you have water restrictions, how fast your soil is drying out and that kind of a thing. But if you can, we found that a really good deep watering Um, In fact, we have some soaker hoses on the tomatoes and peppers, and I found that leaving them on for like 12 hours straight um, overnight a couple times a week has been the most beneficial. Um, The plants are a lot healthier than trying to water just a little bit every night. Um, So you just want to go out and walk through your garden and then address the issues as they crop up instead of letting them really big. So um, I would love to hear from you if you have any questions or suggestions or comments, um, and then we can address them on the air and on the next show. Thanks for listening. And make sure to head over to melissaknorris.com to subscribe for free modern homesteading updates to help you live the simple life.